Right, well, Augustine, a much maligned figure um, in some quarters. Um, I think I'll just explain how I'm going to do it. I'm not sure what it says on the, um, the sheet of what we're supposed to be doing, whether it's just Augustine or whether it's Augustine's Confessions. Just Augustine. Just Augustine. Well, that would be a huge um, subject to cover, even if we were just looking at his mystical thoughts. So it, it's really, I'm going to be looking at um, the Confessions and Augustine's sort of personal journey as he gives it in the Confessions. Um, but first I'll sort of put him in his historical context and then just give a, a very brief um, outline of his life uh, and then a sort of brief introduction to the Confessions and then look at his journey in more detail um, as he gives it there and then the, the majority of the, um, the texts on, on the handout are, are really relate to the sort of um, the mystical experiences um, that he has. And we'll look at those with the texts because that, that's the sort of the, um, we'll, build, we'll build up to that and then see what happens. Um, so Augustine, to put him in his context, is a contemporary, really, a slightly later contemporary of the Cappadocians, who uh, we looked at last week. Um, but he's sort of... I know that um, Marcus Plested sort of said that actually the distinction between East and West didn't really uh, materialise until sort of the 11th century, but um, at this time, there was quite um, distinctly a sort of Eastern Greek-speaking part of the empire and a Western Latin-speaking part. And the Cappadocians belonged to the Greek-speaking part and Augustine um, belonged to the Latin-speaking Western part. He was also um, a contemporary of um, Evagrius and Cassian, who I think are probably, the, well, ought to be the next two on the list, or pretty much. <laughs> I keep losing my list, so I'm never quite sure <laughs> where we are. Um, so monasticism um, was flourishing, um, although not in Africa. Um, Augustine actually um, is credited with um, beginning the monastic movement in Africa, but certainly there were monks in the desert, um, and had been since the mid-third century. Um, as um, Marcus said last week, this was the time when the Roman Empire was becoming sort of Christianized. Um, Augustine was born in 354, and Constantine, um, on his deathbed, had been baptized a Christian. Um, and then, after his time, apart from a sort of brief blip with Julian the Apostate, the emperors did adopt the Christian religion in some form or another. Um, and because there was no longer um, persecution sort of outside the church, the church sort of turned inwards and started squabbling among themselves. Um, and it was out of the squabbling of the sort of various church parties that the great doctrines were developed and, and formalised. And I think he mentioned last week the doctrine of the Trinity. <coughs> Now, Augustine was born in Africa, um, in a small town called Thagaste, um, which um, was about 200 miles inland, um, North Africa, um, and, it, and would now be Algeria, um, if you can 
visualise that. Um, an inland town, a Roman town, which had been sort of built by the Romans in the first century. Um, Africa wasn't by any means a backwater. Um, the Roman Empire depended on it for its grain and its olive oil. And in fact, um, Africa did contribute um, intellectually as well um, and politically because there had been um, Empress Severus um, was an African. Um, Terence, the playwright, um, the man who wrote The Golden Ass, what's it, um, Apulius, I think his name, um, was also from this part. Um, it was um, Latin speaking, although the, the sort of peasants um, spoke Punic, the sort of um, farmers, but, but Augustine was a Latin speaker. <coughs> Um, we don't know how Christianity got to Africa, um, and we don't really know when. Um, the earliest evidence um, of Christianity in Africa is towards the end of the second century, um, when we come across um, some martyrs, um, the martyrs of Scilly. Uh, it's about 180, that's the first evidence of Christianity in Africa. And the major figures um, in, in African Christianity before Augustine were Tertullian, who I think we you probably we probably mentioned before on this course, um, and Cyprian, Bishop Cyprian of Carthage, who was a great bishop. <clears throat> and apart from Christianity, which became the dominant religion in um, by the end of the third century, um, there was quite a variety. I mean, when the Romans um, took over anywhere, they, um, they allowed people to continue to worship their own gods, so that the Punic gods were still being worshipped. Um, and they would adopt a policy sort of identifying them with the Roman gods. Uh, and, and some people think that actually that's what happened with Christianity, so that the the Christian God was just another sort of way of identifying, um, you know, making identification with, with, with their God. So rather than sort of being converted to a new religion, um, it was just um, a sort of matter of identifying. So rather than worship Saturn, they now called him um, Christ. And um, in fact, their view of God was a very, of a very wrathful God, which, which makes sense in the context of their sort of traditional religions. The other um, cults um, which were prominent were the cults of Isis and Mithras, and they were spread by the Roman soldiers as they went along into the various countries. Um, so if we look at Augustine's life, um, as I say, he was born in 354. He died in 430 just as the Vandals were besieging Hippo and um, the Roman Empire was sort of almost completely collapsed, I think, by then. Um, he was born um, of 
Well, it, it wouldn't be right to say he was born into a Christian family. His mother, Monica, <coughs> um, St. Monica, was very devout. Um, his father was a pagan, although he was baptised again on his deathbed, which was quite a common thing um, to do, on the basis that um, people's view of sin was that uh, um, they would leave baptism as long as possible because the sins committed after baptism were much more serious, so you <coughs> leave it as long as possible. Um, but he had a sort of a fairly traditional um, Christian upbringing within that sort of context. Um, Monica, I think, had been um, brought up as a donatist, which um, was a sort of um, form of Christianity. Well, they, they like to regard themselves as much purer um, than the sort of Catholic Christians. But then, uh, as her community converted <coughs> to Catholicism, she was sort of taken along with it. So Augustine really began life as a sort of small-town boy and um, not particularly well-educated. Um, I mean, his education was, was the sort of normal Latin education, which was not... Um, it didn't compare to the Greek education of philosophy. He didn't um, learn any philosophy. It was really a literary education. So he would, um, he would have learnt um, all the works of Virgil by heart, all Cicero by heart. Um, I think Sallust was his was the historian who he studied. I think actually Sallust was also he was a governor in that part of Africa, so that would have made sense to study him. Terence he studied. So it was very much a literary education, and um, he did try and learn Greek, but didn't succeed. Um, he wasn't very good at Greek. We don't know exactly how much he knew. Um, probably not enough to, to read people like Plotinus, um, Plato in the original. He um, worked from Latin translations. <clears throat> but education was one way um, in which someone like Augustine could escape his background, um, and without it he would have been sort of tied to the land um, as a sort of small gentleman farmer. That's, that's how he would have spent his life, in the middle of nowhere, quite a thought. Um, but with education, um, and which obviously his, actually his father, who was an impoverished sort of gentleman, couldn't afford, so with the support of sort of local uh, patrons, then he was able to um, go further with his education. So he moved from his local town to Carthage, um, and, and sort of the, the aim of the education was, was to become an orator, and that's actually what Augustine managed to achieve. And in quite a big way, because by the time he gave it all up, he was sort of really on the fringes of the imperial circle. And that part of the empire, at that stage, was administered from Milan. So he, he went to Milan, and um, as we see, as we go along. Um, and I'm coming back to, to, to the conversion in more detail, but... Um, after his conversion, just to, to sort of finish the, the life in brief, he, um, he went into a sort of contemplative um, way of life for a while and then became a priest um, and then spent the last 35 years of his life as a bishop, which is um, quite a long time.
And it wasn't bishop of a sort of glamorous place, it was bishop of another small town, Hippo, um, which was uh, not far away from, from where he'd spent most of his life, apart from about five years when he'd gone to Italy. The rest of his life he spent in, in North Africa. Um, Augustine, like Oregon, wrote prolifically, and um, unlike Oregon, <laughs> um, because as we talked about, he, um, he was subsequently regarded as um, a heretic. Unlike Oregon, pretty much all of Augustine's work um, is still with us. Uh, so we have all his letters, sermons, commentaries, um, all sorts of treatises on all, every aspect of Christian life. Um, his most well-known, apart from the Confessions, are the City of God, which is available very readily in um, you know, Penguin Classics, um, on Christian teaching, which is about how to interpret the Bible, um, and of course the Confessions. Who's read the Confessions, or bits of them, or most people? Great, great, fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I mean, it, the Confessions is available in, in a huge variety of translations, and um, I think the, the most recent is probably the Maria Bolding, um, which I don't know particularly well. The, the one that I've always used is Chadwick in the World Classics. Um, but I suppose you just have to look at because they actually they, they vary because in for example the Chadwick um, uh, translation which I like um, after each sentence or um, you've got the psalm that it relates to or, or quotes in brackets after it so you, you can see immediately where it comes from the passage whereas Maria Bolding you have to keep going down to the bottom of the page so it's not immediately clear sort of where the passage has come from that um, Augustine is using. But on the other hand, um, there are um, some respects in which hers is better and that the passage that we'll look at um, later is a much better translation of the Latin, but I'll come, when, I come, when we look at that I'll, I'll explain why. So the Confessions has this wonderful um, beginning, um, the, very, the very first um, chapter, and I haven't <coughs> got the exact quote here, but everybody knows the great collect, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Well the Confessions um, is a book really consisting of 13 books. And there is some discussion as to exactly um, what you would call them, whether you would call them um, autobiography, spiritual autobiography, um, whether the first nine books only are autobiography, whether the whole of them are. Um, and I think in a sense, you have to reach your own sort of conclusion when you're reading them. The first nine are really the story of Augustine's past life 
up to his conversion. And then book 10, which is a huge book, by far the longest book of the 13, um, is really um, Augustine talking about himself as he is at the present. So really sort of how difficult it is being a, you know, being a Christian, how he's not cured and he's sort of convalescing. Um, I mean, there's a new biography of Augustine out this year and I haven't read all of it, but I did look at it on the Confessions and the biographer um, calls it a frustrating and repellent text. But uh, talking about book 10, um, after the sort of bright mystical experiences of book 9, he says it's a, uh, repellent and frustrating. Whereas Peter Brown, who is um, the sort of well-known biographer of Augustine, calls it an amazing book. So, again, you know, I mean, you just have to form your own opinions, really. And then books 11 to 13 um, are concerned with the interpretation of scripture. Um, and Augustine's sort of um, different ways of, of interpreting parts of Genesis. <clears throat> um, one thing I think is interesting, um, which Peter Brown points out in his biography, is that um, I mean, the, the Confessions were actually written about ten years after the events described um, in Book 9, or Book 8, Book 9, the, the conversion. Again, there's a dispute, it seems, and this seems to be a recent dispute, as to whether they took one year or six years to write. Um, but they certainly weren't written before, um, before he became a bishop. They were probably written at about the time he became a bishop. Um, so that would be about 395, um, 396, 397, that sort of time. And Peter Brown points out that had he written the Confessions earlier, they would have been a completely different book. Um, because in between the time um, that he had the experiences in them um, and the time when he wrote them, he underwent a further conversion. Um, and this is all tied up with um, some questions that were asked him by, um, in fact, um, somebody called Simplicianus, who became a bishop of Milan after Ambrose. Um, and I, I don't know what the questions were, I can't remember now, but um, what they, um, the, the effect they had on Augustine was to make him understand that actually we can't do anything for ourselves, that actually motivation is the all-important thing. So unless we're actually motivated to do something, um, you know, it doesn't matter that you, you want to do something, you have actually have to be motivated and that's what sort of moves the will to do it. Um, and Peter Brown says that had he written them uh, immediately, he would have made much, placed much more emphasis on sort of contemplation than he actually did. And he came to realise, as, as he went on, um, that actually the important thing was scripture and not the sort of this platonic contemplative experience. And that actually for the, for the majority of people, this type of experience 
was, was not relevant, not important. So, so the sort of emphasis he placed on that diminished. And in fact, it, it's interesting because um, Julian of Norwich, um, who wrote, she wrote two versions of her revelations of divine love. Um, one immediately following and one after about 20 years. And in the first version, she, um, one of the differences between the two in the first version, she um, says that she's writing for fellow contemplatives. And in the second version, she takes that out and she's writing for her fellow Christians. So she has, similarly has realised as time has gone on that actually... You know, she, this is for everybody, and, you, and there's no distinction really to be drawn. Um, the, the title, The Confessions, um, really sums up Augustine's attitude to the human condition. Um, it's confession of faith, his confession of faith, confession of his sins. Um, and yet confession of praise of God. And in a sense, it's a prayer. The whole, um, the whole book is a prayer to God. And it's difficult to know uh, why he wrote it. Um, his earliest biographer, uh, Persidius, who lived with him in his community, um, is obviously quite, places quite a sort of flattering um, slant on it and says that he, he's, ri he's written these because he doesn't want people to think he's better than he is. That's, that's his slant. Um, others would say, well, actually, he wrote, he wrote them to make sure that people didn't think he was worse than he was, that, he, that actually, you know, he, he was no longer um, a manichae, which he'd spent, I'll come to that later, but... Um, people were very suspicious that Augustine never really lost his early sort of heretical um, traits and, and one of the reasons he wrote the Confessions was to allay people's um, sort of suspicions about this because, you know, he, he, he'd gone away from Africa as a manichae and he'd returned as a Catholic Christian supposedly having been baptised. Well, you know, people were never quite <coughs> convinced by this. Um, one interesting um, point that th this new biography, again, I, um, makes, which I hadn't sort of come across before and perhaps requires a bit more thought, um, they, uh, he sees in, um, in the structure the temptations of Christ um, and he's sort of saying, well, you know, Augustine is sort of um, identifying with these temptations. Um, and I haven't got the translation, I thought it's an odd translation he uses, but the, the scriptural, the relevant scriptural text is 1 John 2.16. Um, All that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, and I think he calls it the hankerings of the flesh, um, but I've just taken this from my version of the Bible. Um, All that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride in riches, comes not from the Father but from the world. And um, what uh, O'Donnell says is that if you look at the structure of his journey, he's, he's dealing with the desire of the flesh first, desire of the eyes, 
and the pride in riches, then he has a sort of depression of book where nothing happens. And then he, he goes back in reverse order. So the, the pride in riches is the first one to be healed or, or he cured from. Then the desire of the eyes. And of course, the hardest thing of all for Augustine was the desire of the flesh. So it's quite an interesting idea to sort of Im impose some sort of theological structure on it. Um, and it does seem to, it does seem to work. So it's, um, and this, this um, biography is written by um, a very eminent Augustinian scholar, so one has to take it sort of <laughs> fairly seriously. Um, um, O'Donnell, yeah. I'm, I'm slightly deaf in my one ear, so I don't know whether I'm shouting or... I, it, 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 feels very, it feels very odd when I'm speaking. It's very strange. <laughs> um, anyway. So, should we look at Augustine's journey as shown in the Confessions? Now, if I forget to say anything, it'll all be in the notes. But what won't be in the notes is things that I add. <laughs> so, um, um, so, books one and two um, are Augustine's journey away from God. Um, he sees himself very much as the prodigal son. And, um, and also um, influenced by his, his Virgil, um, he also sees himself as Aeneas, journeying away um, all over the place, both physically and, um, and spiritually. But, but he's particularly the, the prodigal son, and um, there's a lot of language that you can, you can point to um, in there, which, which, which sort of brings in the resonances. Um, so books one and two, he starts sort of before he was born, really. So it's, um, but, but he portrays his, his childhood and his youth um, as very much one of journeying away from God. And he starts off with this sort of very childlike view, you know, big being in the sky, watching you wherever you go. That was his view of God. Well, I, that's everybody's his child's view of God, isn't it? Um, and uh, the, the sort of dissolute youth ends in this great sort of slightly odd pear tree incident, which is very famous. <laughs> um, and one of the things that people know about the Confessions if they know nothing else, um, which he portrays as his sort of great fall. And it's sort of symbolic that it happens in a garden and it's a fruit tree. Um, and he regards it as a great fall because he does it for no other reason than he just wants to do it. You know, there's no sort of, he just does it because he, you know, it's a sort of wicked thing to do sort of thing. There's no, it, it, it's, it's a bit slightly odd that he places so much emphasis on it, but it's, it's obviously sort of more symbolic, I think, than anything else. Um, and Sorry, then, I, I, I mean, I do know the yeah. story. I don't know whether everyone knows the story. And I wonder if it would be worthwhile just saying what he did. The pair, the, oh, what he did. Yes. Um, well, yes, I mean, he went along with a group of, I think he was about 16. Mm. Um, I can't, I, I mean, I may be slightly a year or two out, but I think he was about 16 and uh, sort of at a loss for something to do. He, he'd um, had to cut short his studies because um, family finances um, had run out. So he'd come back and he was sort of, just generally sort of a bit of a vandal with his 
friends and they decided they would go and pick some fruit from um, a pear tree in somebody else's garden and that's what they did and he makes this sort of big big thing about it and in fact he got up to all sorts of dreadful things um, including including sort of um, sex in the church you know all, all sorts of which are far worse but but those things although he tells you about them this is the great sort of symbolic act I think sorry, sorry. do you mind just one more no no carry on the, the, the problem was yes. the, te- the pears tasted foul yes yeah there was no point and he tries <laughs> to find out why it was yes. that he enjoyed the incident so much yes. licking these pears yes. which they then fed to the pigs because yeah. they were so revolting mm. and came to the conclusion that the joy was mm. in the sin Yes. And I think yes. that was what it was about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was the fact that there was no pleasure other than no. the sin. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas with sex, perhaps there was a bit more than that. Well, maybe there was. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was certainly Augustine would uh, would say that. Yes. 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 That is the distinction, isn't it? The fact that, um, yeah, it, it was just just the sheer sort of doing something wrong. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's yeah. like a discernment. It's a, like a very strong yes. discernment. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think the whole book is like. I mean, that that's what makes the confessions. I think so wonderful, um, because it's all like that, isn't it? Really. Um, that's what I like about Augustine. I mean, I you know, forgetting whatever happens sort of subsequently. <laughs> um, it's this sort of this tortured torturedness, I think, the tortured soul, the sort of, um, um, the angst with which, you know, he sort of has to fight for, for everything, really. As William James would say, he's, one, I suppose, one of the sick-souled individuals, rather than the, the happy-souled. <laughs> so book three, which is his sort of turning point, so he's reached the, he's reached his nadir or his sort of furthest away. Um, it doesn't quite come out in the English, but it 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 begins with, I came to Carthage, and all around me hissed a cauldron of illicit loves. Now I came to Carthage. I think T. S. Eliot uses somewhere, doesn't he? I can't remember now. I don't know where it would be. Which, which of his I don't think it's the four quartets. Yes, yes, it probably is. Yeah, um, but in in the um, in the Latin, um, it's Carthago, and then Cauldron is Sartago. So it, it's it's rather sort of it's rather good sort of rhyming. It'd be wonderful to read the whole thing in, in Latin actually, because I'm sure it's it's um, very eloquent. So he'd come to Carthage and this, this, is, this is the turning point. He discovers in the course of his studies a, lost, uh, a work which is now lost um, by Cicero called Hortensius. Um, Augustine actually quotes quite a lot of extracts from Hortensius, so it is possible to to um, sort of work out what it said 
to some extent, which is quite useful. Um, but this is basically um, a, a dialogue by Cicero exhorting Hortensius, who remains unpersuaded, to a study of the philosophical life or, or, or to, to living the philosophical life. And Augustine says this. He says, The book changed my feelings. It altered my prayers, Lord, to be towards you yourself. It gave me different values and priorities. Suddenly, every vain hope became empty to me, and I longed for the immortality of wisdom with an incredible ardour in my heart. I began to rise up and return to you. So there's the awakening of desire. In a sense, it was a reorientation of desire because Augustine was always looking for something to love. I mean, he was just a very passionate <laughs> man. <coughs> um, and he says in, 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 in another of his works, Give me a man in love, he knows what I mean. Give me one who yearns, give me one who is hungry. Give me one far away in the desert who is thirsty and sighs for the spring of the eternal country. Give me that sort of man, he knows what I mean. But if I speak to a cold man, he just does not know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Which I, I like. And it was this sort of, the importance of, of love for Augustine that endeared him to and influenced um, so many mystics later. Should we look at the first quote? Does somebody like to read the first, first quote, which is one of his wonderful and very well-known passages from book 10, actually? Does anybody have a strong desire to read it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you, and see, you were within, and I was in the external world and sought you there, <coughs> and in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath, and now can be talked to you. I tasted you, 
and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touch me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Thank you. So he has now beginning to return and he takes an initial look at the scriptures and he's very disappointed with what he sees um, partly because the translation um, he had was the old Latin Bible and it was a rather rough and ready translation and to a man who'd been sort of you know, trained in eloquence, um, you know, style, not sincerity, was the imp important thing. Um, so he was that he found that very off-putting, and um, and also he 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 found the genealogies, the fact that they conflicted, um, slightly off-putting. It couldn't possibly be be true, um, and the stories of the patriarchs and all their scandalous ways. I mean, all sorts of things served to put him off, really. Um, and then he joined up with the Manichees. I don't know if people have come across the Manichees. Probably heard of them. Um, is, does anybody not know who... Yeah. Um, not they stand for, well, no. Um, <laughs> well... Um, the Manichees were actually very, very well established in Africa by this time. Um, they, the, the founder, their founder had uh, been some a Persian aristocrat called Mani or Mani, M-A-N-I, um, and he. I mean, again, there are sort of d disputes as to exactly what his influences were, but he seems to have taken things from his own religion, um, Christianity. Jewish, I mean, Buddhism. He seems to have sort of taken a hodgepodge, really. But they called themselves Christians because they, um, for them, Christ was their saviour, but not sort of in the sense of um, the word made flesh. Christ was very much a sort of somebody who had come to rescue <coughs> um, the little sort of seeds of light which had been trapped in this evil matter and take, to take them back to, um, to their true home. So it was a sort of, um, and, and, and the, the danger to Christians was that they, they in a sense, they, they took some of the scriptures and, and they, you know, they, they looked to all intents and purposes Christians, but in fact their beliefs were different. And when they, when they came into um, Africa, they seemed to sort of, all the Gnostic groups that were in Africa, they sort of amalgamated and, and drew under their umbrella. So they, they were quite, um, in fact, they... They carried on till about the 12th century, so they were quite um, not just in Africa. I mean, a huge area. Um, so they were quite a. I mean, their mythology was fantastical, but obviously there was something that was uh, 
appealing to people? Well, they sort of appealed to reason. So they would attract um, intellectuals like Augustine who wanted, you know, wanted sort of to understand with his mind. And, and that's what they, that's the sort of people they appealed to. Until you delved a bit deeper <laughs> and uncovered all the sort of strangeness of it all, really. Um, I mean, there were other reasons why Augustine was attracted to them. They did have a very um, ascetic, ascetic lifestyle. Um, I mean, there were two. There were two groups. There were the elect who um, were not allowed to marry, uh, and they were vegetarian and sort of, um, you know, kept themselves. It was very strict life. And then the hearers, of which Augustine was one, who were allowed to marry. Um, but sort of with strict prohibitions. I mean, they didn't, they didn't want to perpetuate this world, so they were not in favour of um, children, having children. And in fact, long after Augustine had sort of given up on them intellectually, he um, continued to sort of live that sort of life with them as, as it, in, in a community with, with the Manichaeus. And it was the Manichaeus, really, who had the sort of, uh, uh, well, and the, um, the philosophers, who, who had the only sort of monastic-type communities at that stage in Africa. And that's because Augustine was so keen on um, living in this type of community, that's why pe one of the reasons people thought that he w was still actually a Manichae. Um, the other reason, um, I mean, Augustine had the problems, I think, that we have, you know, um, how can there be a good God if there's evil? And that was one of his problems. Um, and he felt that their dualism answered that question for him. Um, he couldn't understand how there could be anything that wasn't material. Um, and they, their idea, their, their good and their evil principles were both materialistic, that you know, one may have been not quite so sort of strong as the other, but um, African Christianity was actually quite a materialistic one. Um, and this idea of there being a transcendent God was, was not something that Augustine had come across or could understand. Anyway, he, he in a sense, minimises his connection with Manichaeans in the Confessions, which is something that you might expect. Um, he does, from, from what he tells us, it's clear he was sort of with them. He, it looks as though he was with them for about nine years. In fact, it was slightly longer than that. And he gets rid of them sort of quite early on, I think book five, book six, something like that. But in fact, um, it's clear that their influence was still around after that. Um, he... After this, well, whilst he is still a manichae, he, um, he finally comes across Ambrose um, in Milan, Bishop of Milan. And Ambrose, although not as clever as Augustine, um, was considerably more educated. And, um, I mean, he was Greek, um, educated in, in philosophy, um, introduced... Augustine to people like Oregon, um, Cappadocians, 
um, Plato, Neoplatonists. <coughs> And Augustine sort of treats him really a bit like a sort of spiritual father, spiritual director. And so does Monica, uh, his mother, who follows Augustine <laughs> uh, to Milan, um, also uh, becomes devoted to Ambrose. And Ambrose, one of the important things that Ambrose does is he introduces Augustine to um, the sort of the way of interpreting scripture that Oregon um, is, is well known for, which is a sort of allegorical interpretation. And that helped Augustine to overcome this problem of how you deal with inconsistent passages um, or passages that don't put, portray God in a very good light. Um, this, this, this way of interpreting um, gave him some, some hope. I don't really want to go onto these passages with any five minutes left. Um, are there any questions? Because we've sort of reached the point at which we need to look at the passages now. Um, are there any questions so far? Do you think last five minutes? Can I just ask, you said that in Hamlin 80 was the first signs of Christianity. Yeah. yeah. Mm. What about um, the Ethiopian um, Coptic church? Because they, they claim to be... The Do they? <laughs> I mean, maybe they existed, but nobody knew about them uh, in Europe. I mean, they, they were very, very early. I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know about the... the I mean, the first, the first evidence of Christianity anywhere in Africa was um, 180. I don't know about the... I don't know any, anything about the Ethiopian church. The Coptic Church is not Ethiopian, though, is it? The Coptic is the e Egyptian. The, the, the Coptic, they're very similar. They're, they're similar, yeah. They're, 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 they are separate. Yeah. They're, they're I don't know anything about the Ethiopian Church. I don't know. Perhaps they came from there. I mean, most of these, yeah. yeah, most of the churches, the sort of Orthodox churches, split off um, sometime in the 5th century. Began as, you know, the, the, the various controversies. Um, because to begin with there was just Alexandria and then churches sort of um, would split off because of sort of disputes over the person of Christ or how many natures Christ had um, so I'd be very surprised well, if interesting link was there now some Ethiopian Jews because there yeah. are Ethiopian Jews as well yes. who, want to, who want to go back to Israel yes. and there may be some sort of completely um, in different connection there, yeah. the direct link mm. that has nothing to do with them, mm. with these other African churches, I don't know, I just no. wanted to know if you knew. Well, I, I don't know, but I would have thought it unlikely that there's any evidence for any separate um, Ethiopian church before the 5th, 6th century. Well, they, they claim descendants from the Ethiopian eunuch who brought Christianity to them directly from St. Philip. That's 
they claim, but I mean, I right. don't know what the historical evidence for that is. Not as far, well, I don't but think I there mean, is any, I, as far as I, I know. I don't know, but that, that would be their claim. But think. that's not to say there won't be any in the future, because no, 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 <laughs> yeah. who but knows I mean, what's like. Certainly that would be their passionate right. claim. Right, it's from St and Philip. And it would be very offensive to any Ethiopian if you suggested otherwise. Right. <laughs> so you have to be quite gentle about that. Yeah. That you, that, that's the passage in Acts, you mean, yes, from that? Yes, that, that, that's really the Well, that makes sense, doesn't yeah, it? I On mean, a sort of I mean, it, a non-historical basis, yes, it makes complete it's, sense. It's, just because yeah. it's not a historical basis, for it doesn't mean it's not true. No. <laughs> and doesn't mean to say there won't be documents uncovered. In, in Acts, yes. In Acts, when um, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading a passage of Isaiah and yeah. asked Philip to interpret it, which he interpreted it to... Uh, to be a, a, a prophecy of Christ, uh-huh. and he said, "Could he be baptized?" She was, and then, and then he went back was, to Ethiopia. I went back to the Candice of. Mm. Uh, Maybe his, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's there in scripture. Yeah. What date was Anthony? Anthony, no, Anthony was um, um, mid third century. Who's listening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you spell Manichaeism? Manichaeism, M A N I C H W E. Mm-hmm. The Zoroastrians, um, yes, the dualism in Manichaeism. <laughs> comes from Zoroastrians, um, certainly. But, I mean, it's not just influenced by the Zoroastrians. Yeah. Well, I don't know very much about Manichaeans. I, I, I might think if they were, um, you said they were very into philosophy, um, or the, the rational process. Yeah, not well, necessarily. Would it be reasonable to describe them more as philosophers than... No, no, they weren't philosophers. They they believed that you could reach the truth by reason, but they weren't philosophers. They were, they were. This isn't faith. I mean, that was the thing that Augustine um, didn't like about them in the end, because Augustine realised you needed faith. They had an answer to everything. That's what he liked about them to begin with, because he wanted certainty. I mean, like we all do, we want to be sure, and they had an answer for everything. So nothing was unknown. superficially. No. Um, but there was no room for progress, you know, um, and that's what he didn't like. He was very much a man who, um, well, there's a quote somewhere, a man who writes as he progresses and progresses as he writes. Augustine, for Augustine, life was just, you know, um, one great journey and um, uh, dynamic, you know. Um, so, yeah, he didn't like the fact that, that there was no room for growth, that, you know, they... But no, I wouldn't. They were certainly not philosophers. I would say they, you, they were Gnostics. They were, you know, their their world view was um, was mythological. Really. This was the Manichaeans. Yeah. What do you mean by mythological? They had this wild and wacky um, sort of heavenly hierarchy between God and man. Um, it's almost too complicated to describe, but but you know there there are, there are two realms, light and dark. Um, so rather than being there being a god, there's a, um, a you know god and there's evil equal 
principles, mm -hmm. equal worlds, although they're not completely separate. So you've got, it's just that one contains more good than evil and one contains more evil than good. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some great battle and, you know, man, um, this character, not man, but somebody called Primal Man falls um, and somehow the um, bits of light get trapped in dark matter and the object is to try and get the light back in, you know, back away from the dark matter. That's Star Wars. Yeah, it's very, very <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just ask, whose translation uh, this is that you... Uh, yes, this is Chadwick, yeah, which is world, world classics. Mm. So when you were saying, because you, you made a statement about the manic, about the transcendent God. Yeah. Um, and was that in relation to the manic? Yeah, I'll, I'll deal with that when we look at the passage, because, um, yes, they didn't believe in a transcendent God. No. It was all sort of part of this cosmos, really. Well, they, they, it was all very materialistic. Um, which is what Augustine again could understand. He he couldn't understand something that that there could be something that wasn't material. Yeah. Because that's the tradition he'd been brought up in. So. Just to change the subject slightly. Yeah. Did did, did uh, Augustine? He yeah, had it in for the Donatists, didn't he? Yes. Did it, were they excommunicated in the end? Um, well, they were. They were a separate. Yeah, they were a separate church, really. I mean, but they, they made themselves, I think, into a separate church. Yeah. But Donatism in Africa was very much a sort of um, African nationalist thing. You know, yes, he, he, I mean, he spent all his 35 years as a bishop sort of fighting these people, Donatists, and, you know. Was Tertullian a bishop? Uh, no, Tertullian was a mon. Um, Mon yes, I can say Montanist. <laughs> Montanist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he started off within the sort of, well, it, perhaps you can't really call it orthodox then, but within Roman Christianity. Mm. And then he, he became a Montanist. I just knew he'd changed it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then he called the Orthodox Church a bunch of bishops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <coughs> what was. Um, you said a little bit about where he was born. Yes. What was his lineage? I mean, where did he come from? What was was he Egyptian or what? Um, no, I mean his mother has a sort of um, uh, a Punic name, Monica, um, which in fact this new biography spells with two N's, so one assumes that that's the correct way of spelling it. Yeah. Um, his father was called Patricius, um, and I think. They were sort of impoverished gentry, really. From Algeria. What is now Algeria. Algeria. Yeah, it's Numidia. It was the province of Numidia. Yeah, but I understand that too. I mean, would they be of African origin or were they from... Um, <coughs> or would they have been white or black? Well, I think... Brown? I, I, would, <laughs> I would say that a brown. I mean, as people are now, I don't see why like it should be any... Yeah. Yeah. Because it was very fertile then. I mean, yes, it was extremely. It wasn't a desert, it was no. a bread basket. Yeah, it was. And it was overgrazed, and we mm. the desert now. Mm. Yes. 
Yeah. So, so the, the olive trees. Yeah, the olive trees sort of took over from the from the grain um, by the time Augustine was born. So in fact, the Roman towns like Fagastae um, had become quite faded by the time he he was born. They were, you know, thriving in the first century, and then they just sort of, you know, the attention had moved to the sort of inland, the farms, and the production of olive oil.